Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Revival. What does God have to say about money, and where does it fit with revival? Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will shake once more the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. For the silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. At the core of revival is what God has to say about money. And today I have the privilege of opening with you the words of Jesus. When it comes to the issue of what God has to say about money, I think we ought to take the lead from Jesus. Let the Son of God explain the Father's heart. And there's one place in the Bible that grips me more than any other. And if I had the time today, I'd love to take you through all five parables of Luke 15 and Luke 16, but the time just does not permit it. We'll get four of them done and uh, you'll be grateful that we don't get to the fifth because the fifth one is the rich man and Lazarus where the rich man ended up in hell and I'm sure we don't want to finish the day in that place. (laughs) But let me address today the words of Jesus as they relate to this issue of what God has to say, not only about money, it's a bigger issue than that. It's about your body. It's about your brain. It's about the hours of the day that He gives you. It's about the skills and capacities He has put within you. It's about the visions that He's birthed within you. It's about your capacity to earn, to accumulate assets, to develop around you a cluster of stuff that has the ability to change the lives of people. God has an awful lot to say about that. In fact, there are more statements in the New Testament about money than about any other issue on the planet. And so today we want, we want the words of Jesus to give us insight. What does God want to say to us in the midst of revival about money? Well, it all began back in Mark 2. Don't turn there. But what you find in Luke 15 and 16 had its beginning in, Luke, in Mark chapter 2. Jesus had just appointed a tax collector to his ministry team. Now, if you're here today from the Australian Tax Office, we welcome you. (laughs) I'm so glad you came. Nobody here has any offensive thoughts or anything other than a desire to do you good. Thank you for coming. It's a great thing to have you with us today. But in Jesus' day, that was not the way tax collectors were viewed because tax collectors were not simply money raisers They were Jews who had aligned themselves under Roman power, 
purchased the right to tax their own community and were filling their own pockets with Roman authority at their community's expense. They were, they, they were despised. And Jesus invites one onto his ministry team. Well, that night he not only invites him on the ministry team, uh, he goes to his house for dinner that night and he brings all of his tax collector friends along with them. And that night, the Pharisees, the scribes and the religious police turned up at that house to ask a very important question. You call yourself a prophet of the Holy God. You call yourself a man who has come to explain to us the Father. And here you are sitting with the most despised people, these, these people who fill their pockets at our expense. It'd be, be a little bit like Pastor Corey discovering that there's a guy in the community who's really good at selling drugs to the local community, primary, to primary school down the road. And say, so, you know, how, how does he sell it? He's really good at meeting kids. Oh, we should bring him on our ministry team. Just the kind of guy we need. I want to tell you there'd be some discussion in eldership meeting uh, after that little decision. What do you mean bringing a drug? Well, he's good at meeting, meeting kids. Well, this is what they came to ask Jesus. What do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? How do you explain this? And Jesus in Mark 2 has a very short response. He says, you send the doctor to the sick people. Very simple answer. But in Luke 15, there was a lot more said in that encounter. It unfolds for two entire chapters. And as we come to the, the greater response, Jesus, what are you doing in Matthew's house, the, the tax collector's house, he responds firstly with three parables which are designed to, un, to, to help us understand something. We often don't understand God's priorities. You don't understand God's heart and his priorities. So I said, it's clear that the fact that you, you asked this question, in fact, this is how it says, this is how it starts. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus now has to correct their understanding of how God feels about sinners. He said, well, let me tell you a story. Imagine that you were a shepherd and you had 100 sheep and only 99 came home. Well, if I was a shepherd, I'd reckon that was pretty good. Uh, I'd say 99 out of 100, that's pretty good. You win some, you lose some. Uh, turn on the TV, let's crack open a shepherd's pie. Um, sorry we lost one, but nah, stupid sheep, that's what happens. But that's not the heart of God because he understands the value of a sheep. He understands the value of a human life. In fact, Jesus will at one point say, what will it profit a man to gain the entire world and then lose his own soul? One human soul is worth more than all the stuff in the entire earth accumulated. Worth more than all of it. And Jesus said, you don't understand the value of a human life. And while that little sheep is outside, lost outside of the grace, because that fold represents being under the grace and the protection of God. While they're out there wandering, if that heart beats, eternity turns. And in that moment, a heart is lost in the dark and will never be found again. And God has a passion for lost people. And so out the shepherd goes and labours through the night. And when he finds the sheep, he doesn't kick the thing. Come on, get home, you stupid thing. He puts him on his shoulders, carries him home. And then the Bible records this extraordinary statement. He said, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 fat found people who do not need to repent. 
You just say to the 99 fat found ones, form a small group, someone get out a guitar, sing a few hymns, choruses if you must, and uh, look after each other. I've got an important thing to do. See, Jesus is saying, you don't understand God's priorities. You thought you're the most important thing. I'm a believer. I'm the most important thing. The thing God thinks about the most. He said, no, no. I mean, you are eternally and profoundly loved. But the passion of God, the the heart of God is is stretched. Not for the fat found, not for those who have everything. I mean, you've got the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. How much more do you want? And that one outside has nothing. And so that's where my priority, that's the heart of God, his priority is with the ones who have nothing. He said, you've got to understand God's passion for lost things. And he said, let me tell you another story. There's a woman who had 10 coins. She lost one. Interesting thing, Jesus never uses a woman as a negative example in any parable. Men come to get into trouble, but not, not women. Because Jesus knew women had had enough trouble in his day. He didn't need... They didn't need any more of of him using it for a bad example. But it's wonderful the way Jesus understands the heart of a woman. He says, if a woman lost 10 coins, if she had 10 and she lost one, what would a woman do? Well, he said she'd come up with a strategy. It's an amazing thing. Uh, Why would not Jesus use a man for the same thing? Well, everybody knows a man can't find anything in a house. (laughs) What What would be the point of having a parable about a man finding something that was lost in a house because no one's going to believe that. How often have I found myself yelling out, I can't find my socks. And I hear a voice from another room saying, if I have to come in there. No, it's all right. I'll have another look. I I just had a boy look. I'll have a girl look. They move stuff. That's exactly what she does. She lights a lamp, she gets her broom and she starts in one corner and she begins to work strategically. You see, because lost people deserve a strategy. I can't tell you how many churches I've preached in over the years where there's not a single strategy for lost people. There's lots of strategies for found people, but nothing for lost people. And I don't get it. I say, how are you going to find anything without a strategy? See, if if you put women in charge, because you put the woman in charge, then she'll come up with a strategy and something will change around here. And as a result, Corey, I didn't mean you. I didn't mean you, Corey. When you see this on the film, don't, I didn't mean you. <clears throat> Simone, don't even go there, Al. Don't go there. By the grace of God, that woman got out a lamp and she started to move stuff and she began to work strategically. When you work strategic, oh, I mean, this. It's what we've given our lives to, strategies that will find broken and lost people. Because if you've got one, you'll find them. And at the end, she finds that little lost coin. And listen to the way Jesus sums up the outcome. He says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You want to excite God, find a lost person and help him find the kingdom. But then he said, no, no, wait, wait, I'll tell you another story. Oh, no, oh, I got more. He said, oh, I got more. I'll give you another story. How about a father? Let me tell you about this father. He had two sons. And one of the boys, the youngest one, comes and says to him, you know, Dad, are you feeling okay? Wouldn't mind if you were kind of sick and dead because if you were to die, I'd get my inheritance and then life could really start because life with you, Dad, is hardly a life at all. He came to his dad and said, give me my inheritance. I will. And his, his father could have 
clipped him over the ears. So, yeah, nasty little character, insolent. I worked for all of this stuff. Get, get back in your place. But God will not trap you. God will not imprison you. You, you want to get out? You want to run free like, like a wild donkey? The gates open. Away you go. And so the father does the unthinkable. He takes his property and divides it amongst his sons. Two thirds to the elder son, one third to the younger son. And in effect, he took his superannuation policy and gave it away. Because there's no government um, support for people. The only support you've got in those days is the loyalty of your own family and that your kids will hang around and make sure things go well with you as you get into your elderly, older age. And I'm, all, I'm not that old, just by the way. <laughs> well, this young man takes his father's property, sells it up, gathers up the funds and heads off for the big city. Wine, women and song, woohoo. Then the global financial crisis hits and before you know it, he's in trouble. Loses everything and now he's sitting in a pigsty. And sitting in a pigsty, the Bible says he came to himself. Good place to come to. And he starts to think to himself, you know, it wasn't so bad back there with dad. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, after all, even the servants in my dad's place, they, 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 none of them live like this. And so, you know, I'm going home. I'm going to go back to my dad. And, 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 and I'm going to, I guess he's probably sitting in the back room somewhere. He's probably got his arms folded and his brows knit and he's thinking bad things about me. So I better come up with a bit of a speech and I'll, I'll go back and I'll say to my dad, oh, dad, <laughs> dad, <laughs> I've sinned against heaven and against you, dad. <laughs> and I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. Did you think you were a son because you were worthy? You were a son because you were born in that house, young man. You never were worthy. You were a son because he was your dad and you were born in his house. Well, I'll go back and I'll say to dad, dad, give me a, a broom and a shovel, dad, and I'll work really, really hard. You can put me on the payroll and I can live in a little shack out the back and I'll work really hard to prove I can be a second class citizen. That is not amazing grace. That's ordinary grace, but that's how often people think in their brokenness about the forgiveness of sins and the grace of God. But you see, Dad wasn't sitting in the back room with his brow furrowed and his arms folded, trying to imagine broken arms and legs to teach this kid a lesson. The Bible says he was standing in the words of Jesus. He's standing at the gatepost, looking down the road with longing eyes that maybe I can't force him to come home, but how I wish he would. And then there came the day, oh, is that him? Oh I, oh, oh, I think it is. And Jesus said he ran to him, picked up his skirts and came running down the road in a totally undignified manner. Eastern gentlemen didn't run anywhere. They were dignified. But for that moment, dignity goes out the window. He runs to his son, he throws his arms around him and he's kissing this piggy character fresh out of a pigsty. There's a God in heaven who hugs and kisses piggy little sinners on their way home. Is that you? You need to come home today? There's a God in heaven that hugs and kisses broken-hearted people on their return home. And then he shows the bigness of real amazing grace. He says, I want someone to go and get the cloak, that, that expensive cloak 
that we, that we keep to dignify the, the guests when they come, the, the parliamentarians and the, and the priests. Bring that, oh, Father, I wouldn't bring that if I was you. Mate, no, I mean, he stinks like a pig. That's a very expensive garment. You put that on him, it's gonna be stinking too. I would hose him down for a while and maybe wait a little while. Don't, you don't understand. Have a look at him. His heart's broken, his head is down. I will today be the restorer and the lifter of his head. I will restore his dignity. I want you to bring the most expensive robe. I'm gonna put it on him and let him know he doesn't come home as a second class citizen. And I want someone to bring a ring and we're gonna put it on his finger. Oh, dad, I wouldn't do that. No, no, I wouldn't put a ring on his finger. You don't understand, that's a ring of authority. He's already blown a third of your super fund. He's blowing your money like nothing on earth. You put a ring on him, he starts signing checks again. I wouldn't let him near the place. But you see, I don't have sons with no authority. Go get me a ring. I'll today restore his dignity and I'll restore his authority and put sandals on his feet. Only slaves walk around in bare feet. He's coming home as a son, not as a second class citizen. And somebody kill the fatted calf. Oh, Dad, I wouldn't do that. That's a silly thing to do. Kill the fatted calf. A lot of meat. Haven't invented refrigeration yet. You're gonna have meat all over the place. After it's only you, it's mum, it's the, the younger brother, the older brother, only four of you. I would suggest we kill the fatted duck. But you see, <laughs> the plan is not to put on a little meal for just the four of us. I want the entire community. Kill the fatted calf and let the fun begin. And when, the, when the, the elder boy comes home and he hears it's all happening, he's outraged. He goes to his dad and says, I don't understand you. Well, that's exactly what was wrong with the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't understand him either. They never understood the Father in heaven. They never understood him. They came home, Jesus put these words in this boy's mouth to reveal the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, I don't understand you. This galoot takes a third of your funds, blows it on Wine, women and song. He comes home looking like a pig. The next thing, it's whoopee time. And the father said to him, son, everything I have is yours. You are as thick as two planks. You have no idea how privileged you are. Throw yourself a party every now and then and celebrate the extraordinary privilege you have had in this life. But this one, the lost one, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. We are throwing a party tonight. And in these three stories, Jesus reveals God's passion for the restoration of lost things. It's one of the most wonderful chapters in the Bible. But now there's another chapter. It's the one that follows. Now Jesus has explained to us God's passion, God's highest priority. I'm sorry, it's not you. I know, I wish it was me. He's, we are not his highest priority. Lost people are his highest priority because he knows you've got everything. Throw yourself a party every now and then. Have a revival conference. Fall down, get full of the Spirit of God and have some fun because everything is yours. Now Jesus said, if you understand that, now I've got a story for my disciples. And this is what the Bible says in the following verse. Now Jesus told his disciples. Having said that, he's got something to say to you and he's got something to say to me. And all the Pharisees and scribes are allowed to listen in and they do. And their response to this next story is why he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But I don't have time to go there and frighten the hell out of you. We just have to stay with the happy story, which is the next one. 
come, come back again sometime, well, scare the hell out of you if, if you need it. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will take me into their own homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. He said, "Uh, take your bill. Uh, Right, sit down quickly and, and, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he said. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because at least he'd been smart. He'd been shrewd. How I wish my people were that smart. Not that dishonest, but that smart. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of light. And I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Management, ownership. Which one are you? We all think we're owners. We we love to think we own stuff. I got a car, I got some golf clubs, and I keep thinking they're mine. And if Corey Turner comes to me and says, can I borrow your driver, I'm telling him, no, you can't borrow it, mate, because it's mine. And because you told that story about the hole in one in church in front of my face. You told that story to everybody while I was there, not using my driver. But the funny thing is this, when you, just when you think you own something, you go and die. And if I was to die tonight, you know what? Corey Turner will go straight to the boot of my car. He'll take out that driver and do things I would never have permitted if I was still alive, but I won't have anything to say because I'm not really an owner at all. I'm just managing the golf club for the moment. You see, there's only one owner in the universe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. If you think you're an owner, prove it. Let's see you get it off the planet. But if you go and everything else stays, you see, you didn't own a thing. You were just hanging on to it for a while. Now you're gone, they'll redistribute it and it will go on and you'll be gone. Thanks for that, Al, that's really brilliant. (laughs) Ownership. Owners often did this and God is doing it today. They own everything, but they've never wanted to just micromanage the universe. They want to develop a family that understands the family business. And they want to work in partnership. And so what managers, what owners do is they employ managers. And managers will come on staff and they'll be given a a sphere of responsibility. This man was given a sphere of responsibility. He could sign checks, 
He could uh, make sales. He could adjust payments on the bills. He could do all of that stuff. But you see, if you do it faithfully, it's because you understand the mindset of your owner. What's the owner's highest priorities? You know, what, what do we run this business for? What does the owner have as his big goals in business? And as his manager, I will pursue those goals on his behalf. And because he's very generous, I will benef- I'll benefit from that. Me and my family will be able to live in the, in the, in the, the grace and the, the richness of being uh, employed in part of a partnership with a really, really wealthy owner. And God is the, other, the only one that actually owns anything. He owns it all. And in this life, his deepest desire is to enter into a partnership with people that understand he is a father and he's raising sons and daughters that understand how the kingdom of heaven actually works. And so this particular man, uh, the owner discovers that um, he seems to be mismanaging. And he says, "Um, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot manage manage any longer. Well, one of the great things about being a manager is that you get to make real decisions. You know, years ago, we had one of those dangerous child seats that you could plug in the back of a car. My daughter, Jennifer, has survived it, but um, not by much. And it was one of those very wonky little seats that only had little prongs that stuck under the seat. But the, the, the feature of it was it had a little steering wheel on it and a little horn. And she would sit in there and she would steer the thing. The funny thing about that is it wasn't connected to anything. Uh, I was the only one who had a steering wheel. I was the only one who was making any real decisions in that car. She could sit in that seat at the back and turn that little wheel and absolutely nothing happened. That is not the position that God has put you in. God has not put you in the child seat in the back of the car with a pretend wheel while he exercises total sovereignty over everything. Oh, he'll always remain sovereign, but he delegates responsibility. And that's exactly what he's done with this manager. He's delegated responsibility. And this manager has a real steering wheel. He can actually make decisions that change everything. And that was given to him by the owner. But he discovers, here's a very unsettling thing. Give an account of your management because you cannot manage any longer. Have you figured it out yet that you're gonna die? Have you got that figured out? The statistics on death are extraordinary. It's 100%. Everybody dies. Everybody has a termination notice. Problem, of course, is we don't know the date. This lucky dude, he got a date on his Monday morning. I want back on my desk, I want the the keys to the company car, I want the keys to the company aeroplane, I want the keys to the company beach house, I want the books, I want all the account books, I want them on my desk because Monday morning, this is judgment day. I'm gonna check out the books and you won't be the manager any longer. Well, have you got that figured out? Have you figured out that your management of stuff will not last forever in this life? Have you ever thought through the significance of spiritual banking because nothing on this planet will be yours permanently. Not a thing. Naked you came into this world and naked you will depart. 
The question is what you do while you have an opportunity. And this, do, this dude was very shrewd because he had a termination notice. Monday morning, everything goes back. You know what, however, I got a weekend. Ooh, I've got a weekend. What am I gonna do? I don't wanna dig holes. I, I don't wanna beg. Ooh, he said, I know what I'll do. I will use my opportunity to influence people, to win friends and influence people. So he gets on the phone. He says, come on in. I'd just like to have a little conversation. Imagine you got a phone call from your bank. I guess many of us sitting in this room have got a mortgage. Imagine if the bank phoned you up and the teller said, I want you to come in the office and have a talk to me. And you'd go nervously, wondering what that was all about. And when you sat down on the other side of the desk, he said, you know, we, we're, very, we're very impressed with you as a customer. In fact, the boss and I think you're quite outstanding. Now, at the moment, it looks like on your mortgage, you're paying, what, 3,000 a month? What do you say we cut that to 2,000? Would that work for you? Well, yeah, yeah, it would actually. Yeah, I think I could slip that in to my accounting system. <laughs> you would get out, you would leave that, but everybody's asking, which bank's that? What, what, <laughs> what, what bank's he talking about? You would want to get out of that bank and tell everybody what a great, what a great bank to bank with. The manager coming in the morning, you'd be hugging, kissing him. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, that's such a thing. We love you. We love you. Well, that's exactly what this dude did. He gets all the debtors in and he starts rewriting their bills, knowing that as he does, he'll do two things. Firstly, he will ingratiate himself. And secondly, he will ingratiate his master in their eyes. What the master doesn't realize is that all this is going on behind the scenes. Do you realize that that's your life? Do you realize that for the rest of your life, every day of your life, you will have 24 hours, you'll have money, you'll have skills, you'll have abilities, uh, you'll have a body with which you can serve. And every time you use it to make a difference, you express the heart of God. No matter whether they're found people or lost people. And do you realize that there will come a day when all that will come to an end Today is the day of salvation. Today is the only day you have. I have no, day, no idea if I will be with you all next week. I, I hope to be, I expect to be, but if I'm not, my managership will be done. And I look back to the impact of some of the critical moments in my life. Moments that have changed everything, not only for me, but Change it for other people. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. You know, often people come to church, people say, oh, what are they talking about today? I'm talking about money. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's churches for you. <laughs> Can't go to church and they'll be talking about money. Yeah, you know, that's all churches exist for. They just want to get your money. It's a funny thing. I've never heard anyone coming out of a restaurant saying, oh, you know what? They gave me a bill at the end of that. I think they're in it just for the money. I'm never going back to that restaurant again. I don't think they care about us at all. The churches are not in it for the money. Churches are in it for wildly different things. They're in it because of the value of human life and eternity is very, very long. But the reality is this, if you don't understand how life works, you'll never talk about money. But if you understand how life works, 
This is what the manager said. The master commended because he had acted, at least he understands how life works. He knew that his stewardship was coming to an end. He took his opportunity to make a difference. Oh, you gotta take your hat off. The guy sure knows how life works. If you understand how life works and how you can make a difference in this life, given what's in your body, your brain, your capacities, in your bank account, in your home. Oh God, I look back on one of the most critical moments in my life. Such a simple thing. Probably the biggest asset I will ever own as far as uh, this life is concerned is the house I live in. And I'll never forget with a passion that was emerging in my wife and I back in the, the, the 1970s when we were just kids. We'd only just moved into our house. We were 25 years old. We'd managed to build a home, little house. And here I had a passion for lost kids. And I was, uh, at that time, John Smith and the God Squad were a, a real happening thing. And I'd been down to some of their meetings and you saw all these kids flocking down to God's Squad. I said, you know, Lilydale needs something like that. And I was trying to find a house to set up for a drop-in centre. And my sister gave me a prophecy. She said, how God spoke to me this morning. He said, tell Alan, why are you looking for a house when you already have one? And I'd never thought of that. I never thought, oh, I'll just use, oh, I forgot. Yeah, of course, I've just built a house. Three months after we moved into a brand new house, we opened our house as a drop-in centre and uh, suddenly 35 kids turned up on the first night. And then for the next five years, this was a soul-winning machine because I had a house. And it was, it was just amazing. It changed my entire life. It's why we had a revival in our school over the next, I was leading kids six a day to Christ in the back of the typing room. Because when revivals get moving, I tell you, it's then about lost people. It's not about you and me. It's about lost people. You gotta understand how life works. And if you, if you understand how life works, you understand how vital the steering wheel of opportunity has been put in your hands with everything that God has invested into you. Some of you have got a lot, some of you haven't got that much, but everything we have can make a difference. And by the grace of God, we need to appreciate the opportunities that lie before us. Now Jesus draws this to a conclusion. I hope I get it in the right order, boys. Can you put it up there for me, the first one? Just so I get it in the right order. I don't want to mess this up for you. Well, here we are. Use your wealth to gain friends forever. Verse 10, verse 9. I tell you, Jesus said, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I will meet kids in eternity that will say, I came to your house. I may have not seen them in 50 years, but I will meet kids who say, oh, I will never forget that little, the little witch uh, that we had that used to sit on the freezer in our kitchen. And I'd be preaching in the lounge room and singing my songs with my guitar and you're lucky I don't sing any for you. And that little, little girl who was at that time a little witch would sit on that thing and then she'd move closer and closer, closer to the door until finally she gave her life to Jesus and got baptised. I'll never forget that little girl. Sitting in the back, she's leaning over the thing and she says to me, I love God so much I'd cut my arms off for him. And I said, well, that's not really part of the discipleship manual, but um, feel, feel free if that's what it does. No, don't feel free. Leave. No, just use your arms for Jesus. You don't have to cut them off. 
Better to have a living sacrifice than half a dead one. Use your wealth, the opportunities over these next weeks. There's gonna be an unpacking of the wisdom of God about the difference you can make because you've got a real steering wheel in your hand. Give me the second one, just so I don't get it wrong here. How you handle your wealth is a litmus test of your loyalties. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And one of the greatest dangers of our life is that all of the possibilities in a wealthy country like Australia means that our affections and our loyalty can so easily drift from the eternal to the just turning life into this attenual, this constant experience of Lunar Park. I'm here to be excited every single day. No, you're not. You're here to win lost people. You get fun along the way. You get to have fun along the way, but it's so short and then comes eternity. We have to not only ensure that we have laid hold of eternity ourselves, but use every opportunity. And you need to appreciate that this becomes a litmus test of whether or not we understand who we are and who we belong to. And here's the third one. Put that up for me, lesson three. How you handle wealth is a point of supernatural qualification. Listen to Jesus, because you want revival to flow in this house. If you, let me back up and say this. One of the great tragedies, this is not a message about tithing, this is just a message generally about wealth. But if all the Christians in the United States alone. Now, the only reason I say the United States is because we don't know what Christians do in Australia because giving is not tax deductible. And so there's no accumulation of the, of the uh, statistics to be able to tell you. But we know of all the, the people that attend churches, the, um, the average giving of a Christian in the United States is 3%. That's the average giving. So what we're saying to the owner of all things, 97% is for me, and 3% is for your eternal purposes. And that has to change. If you want to see revival flow, if you want to see hundreds of churches planted in four basic, four hubs around the earth, carrying a spirit of revival for the discipleship of communities and for the world, if you understand how life works, it's gonna require funds. People have to be sent. Buildings do need to be acquired. Stuff needs to be made available. And listen to what Jesus had to say. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with, if I could read it, it would be brilliant. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with True riches, what's the true riches? That's the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The stuff that will never pass away. The stuff that will never cease to change, to heal, to restore. You wanna see it? This is not irrelevant. Oh no, we thought we were having revival, now we're talking about money. All of this stuff is kingdom thinking. And by the grace of God today, I call you over these coming weeks to make some adjustments in your thinking 
because we want the real wealth. We wanna see the kingdom come. I want to see Australia touched. I, I was in a school when revival came. It was, it's an extraordinary thing. When hearts that used to be resistant, hearts that used to, voices that used to be contradictory and counterproductive, suddenly find a tone of humility. And they say, would somebody teach me how to touch Jesus? Would someone show me how to come home? And by the grace of God today, I simply want to say to you that coming up in the next months will be a course that I created as part of our Life Keys ministry, uh, Mastering Your Money. Have you ever learned to manage your, your finances, whatever level they're at, in such a way that God is honoured, your family is honoured, and God's purposes in the earth are being pursued appropriately by you. If you don't, if you've never been, if you've never run a family budget, if you have no idea how to create one, if you have no idea how to build limits into your life that ensure that you are doing spiritual banking every day of your life, Come and do the course. We will be running it here, mastering your money. I will help you to do that very thing. When I first came on, uh, I'm nearly done, guys. Um, the, if the piano guy can come and help us out, that'd be brilliant. The piano guy. Thank you, Al. That's really nice. <clears throat> Probably a bit old. You forget where you are. I had something really, here we are. Um, when I first went on staff at uh, Life Ministry Centre years ago, I, was, I quit my teaching job and I was about to drop my pay 30% to come on staff. My senior minister sat down and said to me, Alan, how are you going to care for yourself and your four children, your wife and your four kids, given the miserable amount of money we intend to pay you? And I said, I'll be okay. He said, show me. I said, I don't know how to. I had never, even though I have a sub-major in accounting, even though I had taught business subjects for seven years, I had never run a family budget. I had no idea where we were and the only way we knew was how far into debt we'd got on our credit card. That day my pastor began a discipleship process that my parents never gave me, my, my education never gave me, and my church never gave me. My pastor discipled me on how to begin to master my money. That conversation changed my life. If you'll join me in these coming weeks uh, in term three, I'll change yours and I'll help you become a great manager of your resources. Father, in the name of Jesus, I commit these precious people into your hand. And I ask you, by the grace of God, would you take the wealth of this congregation, take the sometimes misused wealth, and turn it to better things. Help us when we stand before you, not to be there with our faces red and our account books open saying, oh my God, why did I do that? Oh, I pray for the day when we will meet people in heaven who will run up to us and say with tears running down their face, it was you who changed my life. Someone came to my village or to my city and planted a church. Somebody took me through one of your courses. It changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. I'm in heaven because of you. And Lord, I pray today that the revival 
of life will flow like a river over these coming days in Jesus' name. One last thing I want to invite you. I want to pray over people. If you have never run a family budget and already, you, you, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to come to do anything other than to say, I need help. I need help in managing my finances. I just, I need training. If that's you, in a moment when we stand, I want you to get out of your seats and come. Now I know no one wants to get up and say, yeah, I need help. Yep. The reason we ask is because often we hear a message and we say in our mind, yeah, that's really important. I should do something about that. But we walk out of the uh, auditorium and within 20 minutes, we've completely forgotten that sense of urgency that we felt just moments before. If you feel it now, I want you in the, let's all stand. If you feel it, you know you are one of those who as a manager of all that you are, is in deep need of some discipleship. I want you to step out of your, your place and come and simply say to God, Lord, that's me. I need you to teach me. I need you to disciple me. I need you to expand my capacity for you. As you come, bless them, Father. Bless them. God, they're hearing your word. Oh, they're hearing the word. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord. And the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, he says, I shall bring peace. There is an emerging church, a revival across the land and then across the earth that will so capture the hearts of people. They'll find the peace of God, but it's going to require discipleship to see it all take place. And in Jesus' name, we're yours. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.